Now, as we come to Acts chapter 23 this morning, we come to something in the middle of the life and the ministry of the Apostle Paul. And I don't have time to set a full context for it, but let me do it just briefly, if I could. Paul just was reeling from two shattered opportunities that he had. From being up on the Temple Mount, he had an opportunity to preach to a mob that had just tried to kill him, and it went sour very quickly. Then the next day, he had the opportunity to speak before the Jewish council, known as the Sanhedrin, and to preach Jesus to them. But that whole opportunity went sideways very fast. And Paul then was crushed. So crushed that in the darkness of the night, Jesus had to make a special appearance to come and to encourage his faithful servant. That's what we read right here in Acts chapter 23, verse 11, which was where we ended last time. Let's take a look at it. Jesus said to Paul, be of good cheer, Paul, for as you have testified for me in Jerusalem, so you must also bear witness at Rome. That's a beautiful promise, isn't it? Not only that Jesus gave Paul some commendation for the work that he'd already did, but Jesus told Paul that there was more work for him to do and that he was going to Rome. Well, Paul had every reason to trust in that promise from Jesus and to feel that it was invincible. So the next day when he awakes, by the way, that's the way verse 12 begins, the very next verse that begins. And when it was day, a new day dawns. Paul's heart is filled with the thrill of the promise of God, knowing that he's no longer put on the shelf. He's not disqualified in any way, but God has good things ahead of him and that he's headed towards Rome. I just love the idea of God's promise being real to us in the morning. I don't know about you, but I think about it every morning. Almost every morning I wake up and I think that, according to Lamentations chapter 3, that his mercies are new to me every morning. That's what it says. Isn't that a great promise? Sometimes I fear that I wore out God's mercies the day before. But you know what? I wake up and what does it say? His mercies are new every morning. Well, a new day dawns for Paul. He's got a new promise from God. He's filled with encouragement. And what happens? Well, something kind of bad happens. Verse 12. It says, And when it was day... Some of the Jews banded together and bound themselves under an oath, saying that they would neither eat nor drink until they had killed Paul. Well, good morning to you, Paul. Uh, Let's continue on. Now, there were more than 40 who had formed this conspiracy. They came to the chief priests and elders and said, we've bound ourselves under a great oath that we will eat nothing until we have killed Paul. Now you, therefore, together with the council, suggest to the commander that he be brought down to you tomorrow as though you were going to make further inquiries concerning him. But we are ready to kill him before he comes near. Do you see what's going on here? A group of more than 40 assassins have planned an ambush to murder the Apostle Paul. Now, in the days of Paul and Jesus, there was a secretive group of Jewish assassins who targeted the Romans and their supporters. They were dagger men. They called them dagger men because they carried shark, sharp daggers underneath their cloaks. And when they would walk by an unsuspecting Roman soldier, they would take out that dagger and they would stab him or slice him, preferably in the jugular, and just walk right on by like nothing happened. And nobody would knew that those were the guys that did it. 
Well, these men, these these assassins, apparently some of them now had enlisted their cause against Paul and they wanted to murder him and they had it all figured out. They had an elaborate plan made that they were going to uh, suggest to the commander. They talked to the chief priests and to the scribes. Tell them, okay, suggest that you want to see Paul again tomorrow. And we're set up this ruse to get Paul at a certain place at a certain time. And when he's there, we'll murder him. I find it very interesting that these men, if you were to ask them, if you were to interview them, they would tell you that they were doing the will of God. If you ask them if they loved and served the God of Israel, oh yes, we love and serve the God of Israel, but they thought nothing of using murder and lies in the pursuit of what they thought was from God. Friends, that's not godly religion, is it? Nevertheless, these men were determined, but God was determined to have His way. These men who were completely sold out, completely zealous in their cause, though they were wrong, God had a way to protect Paul in the midst of it. Look at it right there in verse 16. We read, So when Paul's sister's son heard of their ambush, he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Now we read this and we stop for just a minute. We say, I didn't even know Paul had a sister, right? Well, not only does Paul have a sister, he has a nephew. And the nephew comes along and does this. I find it kind of interesting. This is a little side note, if I could make it this morning. Don't you think it's kind of interesting that we know virtually nothing about Paul's family life, right? This is about the only thing we know. We know he had a sister and we know he had a nephew. We don't know much more beyond that. Now, it's very interesting. We do know that Paul was single. We know that from 1 Corinthians chapter 7, where he makes a reference to it, and 1 Corinthians chapter 9, where he makes another reference to it. And I find that to be interesting. That Paul was single, and yet he also promoted himself as sort of an example to others that they shouldn't be despising the fact that they're single and what they do. I think about that as we sort of conduct ourselves in the church. Because in the church, I think rightly so, we do a lot to try to bless and strengthen marriages and families. We see marriages and we want them to be strong. We want them to be blessed. And so there can be sort of a focus on marriage ministry in the church. The same thing with families and parents and all of that. And I think that's a good and I think it's an appropriate thing for the church to do. Although sometimes I think about it, I think, man, I wonder if single people feel badly. I wonder whenever we're talking a lot about marriage, I feel, well, am I just sort of left out in the midst of this? Listen, I want you to know you're not left out. But please excuse us when we speak to marriages because we think that's an important thing. But we don't speak to marriages in any way trying to imply that we think that your place as being a single person is not good or honored or that God can't use that. Let me just say two words, right? Paul and Jesus. Two single guys, right? And so please, please, in the midst of when we talk week in and week out, if we address things like marriage and family, we don't want single people to feel excluded. Rather, we want you to know that God has a role, God has a plan, God has a place for what he's doing in your life in the midst of your singleness. But we know that Paul was single. But I'll tell you something else about the family life of Paul, if I could continue on this thought just a little bit longer. I think that Paul used to be married. I think at a previous time in his life, he was. Now, why do I say this? Well, I say this for two reasons. First of all, in Acts chapter 26, verse 10, Paul makes reference to having a vote, and the vote he would have would be as a member of the council, the Sanhedrin. Well, to be a member of the council or the Sanhedrin, you had to be married. But even beyond that, 
For Paul to describe himself as a Pharisee of the Pharisees, as a Hebrew of the Hebrews, as just a righteous man. Listen, a righteous man in that culture was a married man. In that Jewish culture of the first century, if there was a guy who was 25 years old and not married, they thought he was unrighteous. So it's very, very likely that Paul was married. So people ask the logical question, what happened to his wife? What happened to Mrs. Paul, right? Well, we really don't know, do we? There's two main speculations. Some people think that maybe his wife died. I suppose that's possible, right? Other people think that his wife left him when he became a believer. And that may very well be true, because remember, when Paul became a believer, he left behind a fast-track, successful career as one of the rising young rabbis in the world of Judaism of his day. You could see where a wife might say, listen, I didn't sign up for this. And so she left him, perhaps. So we really don't know, but I think there's good reason to believe that Paul was married at one time. We know that he was single because of what he writes in 1 Corinthians 7 and 9. We know he had a sister, and then he had a nephew. What happens with the nephew? Look at it again in verse 16. It says, When Paul's sister's son heard of the ambush, he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Now you think, what a crazy coincidence. There are men plotting against the life of Paul and just happens to overhear that this young man, this nephew of Paul's, and he's able to get in and to tell Paul and to warn him of this plot. What a crazy accident it is, right? Listen, you know that it's no accident at all, right? It's really one of God's glorious, what we might call a small miracle, right? Listen, even though you might say it's a small miracle, it's still a miracle. Arrangements of time and people and locations are sometimes true miracles. There's a word that people used to use to describe that. They used to call it providence, right? You just call it God's providence when God has a way of orchestrating things. He knows that this person should be here and this person should hear that and this time should do this and it all works together in the beautiful tapestry of God's plan from beginning to end. He has a providential plan for history and he's working it out. And sometimes those small miracles, those unexpected small things are a big part of it. You know that. You know it in your own life, don't you? We could probably have a wonderful time this morning to have people get up and just describe how God has worked small but amazing miracles in their life. Sort of hinges upon which great things have turned in their life. It's been that way in my life. About 10 years ago, it was the year 2002, in the summer of that, there I am at a conference. It's just a beautiful season of God's work in my life. It's great. I'm there for the conference. I'm just ready to hear from the Lord. And, and I'm walking back to the room where I'm going to stay. And I'm walking back by a little chapel, just a little chapel there on the grounds of the conference center. And, and so something inside me says, hey, go in there and pray. Okay, I'll go in there and pray. So I go in there and I kneel down at the front little bench. I'm the only one in this little tiny chapel. And there I am praying in the midst of it. And what does God do? God gives me a vision right then and there, which is unusual for me. I'm not a man of great, you know, sort of visions and visionary kind of thing. But this on this time and this place, God gave me a vision having to do with our future. And it was fulfilled and set in motion just a few days later when God began the process that led us to go to Germany and start a small Bible college there. Now, what, what kind of small miracle arranges for me to be at that place at that time to receive that thing from the Lord and for it to set in motion that would affect not just me, but my whole family and a congregation and you guys here today? I don't know if I'd be here today if I wasn't in Germany before that. 
Well, again, it's just one of these small miracles. I think of another instance when God did that, even earlier that, much earlier, when we first came to Simi Valley and we're starting a church there, we were starting it in such a humble, sort of innocuous kind of way. We kind of didn't even know much of what we were doing. Of course, we thought we did, but you just go out and you try in a very, very humble beginning. We began that church in two small YMCA daycare. No, it was one YMCA daycare trailer with two parts to it. And one part separated by a little curtain was the children's area, and one part was our, you know, area. You could fit about 15 of those daycare trailers into this room. I mean, it was just, just a small, humble beginning. And so the, the very start of it, we were going to have just sort of a service to get there and to, you know, just with the seven or eight people who were going to help us get started and let's go and let's get started with all this. And, and we got the key from the YMCA group to go in there and open up, and we go in there, and what do you do? You try to open the door at the key, and what happens? The key doesn't work, right? Now, what happens when the key doesn't work, right? Everybody thinks that they have to try it, right? Because obviously, I don't know how to work a key, right? So every one of the seven or eight people there, you know, try to jiggle it or give it a little bit of English or work on it and this and that. Nothing works, right? So what do you think? Well, let's just go home. I start looking at the building and I go, you know what? I could probably break into this place. Look at that screen, and I bet that window, I could probably probably, and somebody had the wisdom say, you know, that probably wouldn't be the best testimony in the world to break in. Well, okay, good. Then somebody says something that you never want to hear if you're a pastor in these kind of situations. Here I am, a pastor, planting a church, right? Somebody says what you don't want to hear. Can you imagine what they said? Let's pray. Yeah, right. Okay, great. Let's pray and then try the key, okay? Well, well, once somebody says it, you can't not say it, right? Well, no, let's not pray. You can't say that. Oh, so, all right, let's pray, let's pray. So we prayed, we prayed. Instantly, if I remember it right, we handed the key to Ingalil. She went over, she went, it turned, and it opened. Now, here's the crazy thing. It was the wrong key. It, I mean, it was just flat out the wrong key. We, we opened the door and we blocked it open, of course, right? We didn't want to shut again. But we took the key out and tried it again. It wouldn't work again. It worked one time. Now, look, was it a big miracle? No, it wasn't a big miracle. If we couldn't have got in the daycare church, well, we're not going to start the church. It was a small miracle, but it's on those small little miracles that God turns great big things and gives encouragement and hope and blessing. And that's what he did for us. Look, I think the even greater examples from examples that we might get from our own lives are examples that you see in the scriptures. I'll never forget that tremendous example in the book of Esther, right? Where the king of Persia, who has authority over the mightiest empire on the earth in those days, he, he can't sleep one night, right? A crown upon his head, all authority, but he can't sleep. He's not master over a single minute of sleep. And so what could he, he can't sleep, so he tells somebody, well, come and read me something from the National Archives. Somebody goes and grabs a scroll off the National Archives, just randomly picks any old scroll, walks in, opens it up, puts a finger down to one place and starts reading. And what is it? It's the story of how Mordecai the Jew rescued the king and nothing was done to reward him. And that single reading, that by chance seemingly, that small little miracle that happened there, saved the Jewish people from genocide in the Persian Empire. We see how God does this. He'll take the smallest little miracle and only he'll turn a great big thing. Listen, you could say this of Paul and the warning that he received from his nephew. It was a miracle, but it was no surprise. It shouldn't have surprised any of us. It shouldn't have surprised Paul because God had to protect Paul. 
Do you know why God had to protect Paul? Because he promised he would go to Rome. Paul was invincible until he got to Rome. Once he got to Rome, all bets are off, right? But he said, Jesus promised me I'm going to Rome. That's where I'm headed. So what happens next? Verse 17. Then Paul called one of the centurions to him and said, Take this young man to the commander, for he has something to tell him. So he took him and brought him to the commander and said, Paul the prisoner called me to him to ask me to bring this young man to you. He has something to say to you. Just one thing to note in there. Did you notice it in verse 19? Excuse me, verse 18, where it gives the title, Paul the prisoner. I don't know, if you like to underline things in your Bible, just underline those three words, Paul the prisoner. It's going to be Paul the prisoner until the end of the book of Acts now. That's it. You know what's weird? He didn't do anything wrong. But you know what? God made him a prisoner so that he could preach to kings and even to Caesar Nero himself. God did that deliberately, but it was a strange thing in the life of Paul. He hadn't done anything wrong, but he was going to be a prisoner now until the end of the book of Acts. Now, verse 19. Then the commander took him, that means Paul's nephew. He took him by the hand and went aside and asked privately, what is it that you have to tell me? And he said, the Jews have agreed to ask that you bring Paul down to the council tomorrow as though they were going to inquire more fully about him. But do not yield to them. For more than 50 of them lie in wait for him, men who have bound themselves by an oath that they will neither eat nor drink until they have killed him. And now they are ready, waiting for the promise from you. So the commander let the young man depart and commanded him, tell no one that you've revealed these things to me. You see, the commander now interviews Paul, excuse me, Paul's nephew. You got the order of events, right? The plot is made. Paul's nephew hears about it. He tells Paul. Paul tells the centurion. Paul gets the centurion to go get the commander. The commander comes and interviews Paul's nephew. Now, there's a phrase in there I think is very interesting in verse 19. Did you say that? It says, the commander took him by the hand. Now, look, you and I look at it. So? Listen. Don't you realize that this is one of those small details that only an eyewitness would notice, right? If you were making this up, would you ever think to include such a small detail? But if you lived it, if you saw it with your own eyes, you would be surprised at how a Roman commander would reach out his rough hand and take the hand of Paul's nephew and say, come with me, we got to talk about this. It would just strike you. I don't know how Luke learned about this. Maybe he learned about it from Paul because Paul saw it happen in front of his eyes. Maybe he heard about it from Paul's nephew and he interviewed him later. I don't know exactly, but I read little lines like this in the biblical text and it makes me rejoice. It makes me rejoice because I understand that it's true. It's from eyewitness accounts. The text itself has integrity. So the commander learns about it. He tells Paul's nephew, don't tell anybody about this. I don't want anybody to know that you're the one that gave me this information. And what happens next? Verse 23. It's amazing. And he called for two centurions saying, prepare 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go to Caesarea at the third hour of the night and provide mounts to set Paul on and bring him safely to Felix, the governor. Everything changes. You see, before this, Paul was going to stay in Jerusalem until the case was resolved. Now, because of this incredible assassination plot about him, it's no red alert. Let's get him out of town tonight and send him to Caesarea. 
Not only does he go to Caesarea, but he goes with some sort of accompaniment, right? How about this? 470 soldiers are going to go with Paul from Jerusalem. Not all of those soldiers are going to go all the way to Caesarea, but that kind of group is going to lead him out of Jerusalem. And this, I find this is amazing. Even if you look at verse 24, it says, provide mounts to set Paul on and bring him safely to Felix, the governor. Not only was Paul going to leave Jerusalem, he was going to ride out on several horses that were made available for his disposal. It was as if Paul was escorted out of Jerusalem with a full police motorcade, a couple of special forces team, air support, and in a bulletproof limo. That's what it'd be like. And Paul's just thinking, yeah, Lord, you know how to do this. You see, not only did Jesus fulfill his promise to protect Paul, but he did it in such a wonderful and maybe even exaggerated way that it was as if he intended to destroy any of Paul's doubts, to destroy any of Paul's fears. It's like, Paul, how can you not trust the God who provides 470 armed escorts to get you out of town? You see how good I am? Do you see how much I care about you? Do you see how I'll protect you? Friends, I want you to know that. I want you to take it deep within your soul. God cares about you. He'll protect you. He has his eye upon you. Look, I, I believe. I believe with all my heart that Jesus Christ died on the cross to pay the penalty of our sins, right? That he did that, that when he went to the cross and when his blood poured forth, when his life was given, it was to purchase our life, to to win us to him, to provide an atonement and a forgiveness for our sins. Jesus said, put their sin upon me. I will bear its judgment. I believe that at the beginning of the Christian life. I'll tell you what else I believe. I believe there's a glorious end to the Christian life, too, or at least a consummation of it in heaven. And I believe in heaven. I believe it's real. I believe heaven is awaiting for all those who put their trust in Jesus and what he did on the cross. For those who knew, know who Jesus is and what he did for us on the cross, that's what their heavenly destiny is. It's to be with Jesus forever. I believe in that beginning. I believe in that end. But I'll tell you what else I believe. I believe that God will take care of us in the middle. Don't you? Have you forgotten that? Are there people here this morning, for some reason, you think that God has taken his eye off of you? That he stopped caring for you? Now, please, when I say that God will care for you, God will love you, God will protect you, I'm not saying for a moment that God will allow everything to be easy or comfortable. Look at the life of Paul. Was everything easy or comfortable? No, no way. But I'm just saying that there's a care, there's a love, there's a protection there's, there's a calm even in the midst of the storm that God will bring to us if we will receive it. I think how there might be people this morning, you're really struggling with that. You're struggling over the idea of God's care for your life. I want you to be encouraged in it all over again. That for whatever it is, your life is given to Jesus Christ. You've done what you should at the beginning and received what Jesus did for you on the cross. You have that heavenly destiny. I'm telling you, in the middle, God will take care of it. Have some peace about it. Stop acting as if you don't have a Father in heaven who loves you and cares for you. You do. Rest in that. Have peace in that. Well... God gave Paul such an exaggerated display of that, that there was no reason for Paul to doubt it. And I say there's no reason for us to doubt it either. 
Now let's continue on. Verse 25. He wrote a letter in the following manner. Now the letter is written by the Roman commander to the governor of the province where Paul is going to. Here we go. Verse 25. He wrote a letter in the following manner. Claudius Lysias to the most excellent governor Felix. Greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them. Coming with the troops, I rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman. And when I wanted to know the reason they accused him, I brought him before their council. I found out that he was accused concerning questions of their law, but had nothing charged against him deserving of death or chains. And when it was told me that the Jews lay in wait for the man, I sent him immediately to you and also commanded his accusers to state before you the charges against him. Farewell. Well, this is just sort of a normal bureaucratic letter, right? And you might be reading this and say, why did Luke think that this was important to include in his text in the book of Acts, right? Why would he include this letter? I'll tell you why he would include it. For one line that you find in verse 29, where Claudius Lysus, the Roman commander, says this, that he had nothing charged against him deserving of death or chains. Do you see what Claudius is saying right there? He's saying, Paul didn't do anything wrong. I'm still unclear about the whole situation, but Paul didn't do anything wrong. Luke wanted it noted in the official record that the first guy, the guy up close to Paul's situation, looked at it and said, Paul's not guilty of anything. And so if there was a letter demonstrating that, Luke was more than happy to include that letter into the book of Acts. It was Luke's way of showing that Paul and other Christian missionaries were harmless and that they should not be prosecuted or persecuted by the Roman government. Okay, now verse 31. Then the soldiers, as they were commanded, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. The next day they left the horsemen to go on with him and returned to the barracks. When they came to Caesarea and had delivered the letter to the governor, they also presented Paul to him. So the 200 soldiers only went as far as Antipatris because that was the most difficult part of the road up to that very point. After that, from Antipatris to Caesarea, it wasn't quite as dangerous, and so they could send those soldiers along the way. It says there in verse 33 now that they also presented Paul to him. Paul had made it out of Jerusalem and on to Caesarea at the coast. Here's the bottom line. The plot of the 40 assassins failed. Look, I don't know what you're facing this week. It's probably not as bad as 40 assassins who were committed to uh, kill you and not eat and drink until they do anything. We read this and we're all very happy, right? And and God came through, through some kind of miracle for Paul. and, And Paul was happy also. But notice this, the miracle happened because he was in some kind of crisis, right? Isn't it a glorious thing to be delivered from the threats of 40 murderous assassins? But how many people want to be under the threats of 40 murderous assassins, right? Look, I'll just make the point, but but please listen carefully to this because I, I, I won't develop it. I'll just say it. We all want a miracle. We just never want a reason for a miracle, right? But please, friends, it's in our extremity many times that we see the power and the goodness of God most plainly. Oh, one more thing before we talk about verse 34 and end the chapter. Everybody wonders about this. What about those 40 guys, right? Did they all die of starvation? (laughs) Right, were there 40 malnourished, you know, guys on death's door there in Jerusalem? Because, oh, Paul got out of our clutches. 
No, you see, you need to understand something. In rabbinic Judaism of that day, they had a lot of loopholes that somebody could jump through if they wanted to break a vow that they had made. And so I'm pretty sure that all of these 40 guys used loopholes that the rabbis would have approved of, and they found a way to have breakfast the next day. (laughs) Verse 34, let's conclude the chapter here. And when the governor had read it, he asked what province he was from. And when he understood that he was from Cilicia, he said... I will hear you when your accusers also have come. And he commanded him to be kept in Herod's praetorium. Now Paul is out of Jerusalem. He's at Caesarea on the coast. And he's in the custody of Felix the governor. We're going to study more about Felix the governor in the coming weeks. Let me just say this. The guy was a piece of work. Paul is in his custody right now. And the first thing Felix wants to know is if he's really responsible for him. So he says, where are you from? And when he finds out he's from Cilicia, he goes, okay, I guess I really am responsible to hear your case. So let's do it. I will hear you when your accusers also have come. And you know what Paul thinks? Paul thinks this is amazing. I'm going to have the opportunity to preach before the governor of the whole province. And that's what we're going to see in the coming chapters. Paul's going to get to preach and to present his case, to tell his story, to talk about Jesus in front of the Roman governor. And I bet instantly an old promise that God had made to Paul echoed through his mind. When Paul first was converted, when his life was first turned right side up by Jesus Christ, God made him a promise that he would speak before kings and Gentiles. And Paul says, here we go. I'm going to speak before a Gentile governor. And pretty soon he's going to speak before kings, culminating in his great defense before Caesar that comes after the end of the book of Acts. Isn't that amazing? God made this amazing promise to Paul some 20 years before. And now, now that promise is being fulfilled. So they put Paul in Herod's praetorium. And this begins his period of confinement in Caesarea. I want you to think about this. Paul's going to spend about two years in Caesarea, in confinement, right? He'll spend about a year traveling, and then he'll spend about two years in Rome, at least, before he has his trial before Caesar. In five years, or I should say over five years, Paul is in Roman custody. Now I want you to contrast that to the life he had been living before, Paul was the free and easy missionary, right? Hey, I want to go to this city. God's leading me to that city. Let's go. Let's travel. Let's sail. Let's walk. Let's march. Let's do whatever. Paul was a man with unbelievable freedom before. And now he's a man who has his freedoms restricted very severely. But you know, in either circumstance, God was going to do his will and glorify himself. I think about that with the, with the passing stages of life that people endure, right? Maybe in your younger years, you had a lot of freedom. Man, you could just go anywhere, do anything at the drop of the hat. Freedom, that's what your life was all about. Now, you have much less freedom. And you think about the coming years, when maybe because of age, maybe because of health, maybe because of other circumstances in your life, your freedoms are going to be very restricted. Some of you look at that and you fear that greatly. You wonder, well, where's God in the midst of all that? Let me tell you, God is present and God will use it if you'll allow him. God had not abandoned Paul in the midst of this time of confinement. 
God would work through him in incredible ways. But it was a different season of his life that he had to embrace and take hold of. And in every step of it, God was going to fulfill his promise. Paul received a promise from God in Acts chapter 23, verse 11, where he said, you're going to Rome. Jesus told him that face to face. Now the promise is in the process of being worked out. Listen, the promise was real in the years of his freedom. The promise is real now when he's more confined. It was Paul's responsibility to take that promise of Jesus, to believe it and to receive it. Jesus makes promises to you. Now, I'm not talking about personal promises that he may make to you on a very sort of individual basis. I can't speak to those individually in your life. But I'll tell you what, Jesus makes promises to you that if you'll come and trust in him and trust in who he is and what he did for you on the cross, he'll forgive your sins. Jesus makes promises to you that he'll give you hope. Jesus promises you that he'll give you joy in your life. Jesus promises you that he'll bring you to heaven. Promise after promise after promise. So look, here's my very simple question for you. Is there a promise from God that you need to believe in today? And the fact that you don't believe in it, it's messing up everything in your life. Really, do do you have to reject God's promise of joy in your life? Do you have to reject God's promise of peace in your life? It's there for you. Reach out and grab onto it. But just in my conclusion right now, I'd just simply like to say this. I think the greatest promise that God makes is the promise that our sins can be forgiven by what Jesus did on the cross. The guilt, the shame... The, the, the darkness in our heart, the emptiness that we have, that'll be forgiven and God will give you new life if you'll trust in who Jesus is and what he did for you on the cross. And so right now, as I conclude in prayer, I want to give an invitation for people to do exactly that, to put their trust in Jesus and to have their sins forgiven and to receive new life from him and for you to have his promise of heaven in your life. Let's pray together for that right now. Father in heaven, I thank you, Lord. I thank you for the the depth. I thank you for the strength. I thank you for the goodness of your promise. And I think, Lord, there's many people here today. They need to receive um, just a renewed confidence in you and the promise that you make for their life. Lord, if there's any promise that's great that we should think about now, Lord, I want to I want to think and I want to pray that the promise you make for the forgiveness of sin and for new life to be given. That, Lord, um, right here, right now, that, that there'd be people in this room who receive that. And so I ask that you'd speak to their hearts, Lord, even as I speak. Friends, while we're in prayer right now, people are praying, their heads are bowed, eyes are closed in reverent prayer. If that's you, if you want to receive this forgiveness of sins, this clearing of your guilt, this new life that Jesus promises to you, you can receive it right now. Tell Jesus now that you want it. Say it. Even if you say it in a whispered voice, say it and Jesus will hear you. 
Matter of fact, I'll give you words to say right now. I'll pray a prayer. You just pray it after me. Jesus, I come to you and I want your promise. You promise to forgive my sins. You promise to clear my guilt. You promise to give me new life. If I would trust in you, in who you are, in what you did for me on the cross. So, Lord, I say it now. I do trust. I do believe. I don't believe perfectly, but I believe. And I receive what you have for me right now. If you'll speak words like that to Jesus and mean it in your heart, he'll hear you from heaven. He'll forgive your sins. He'll give you new life. Now, if that's you, if you've done that, if you want to do that now this morning, could, could you please raise your hand? I want to pray for you. I want it to be an encouragement to other people here. I want you to know that it's not the raising of your hand. God bless you, sir. It's not the raising of your hand that, that rescues you. It's what Jesus did for you on the cross. You receive it by faith. But a raise of the hand just shows me and others that you've done it here this morning. Anybody else here this morning? God bless you back there. Others. Bless you, sir. Bless you. God bless you over here to my left. Thank you for that. God hears you. God hears you're calling out to him. Anybody else here this morning? Oh, Lord, bless that one back there. Bless them, Jesus. Jesus, I pray for those who have put their faith in you this morning. I pray not just for an outstretched hand, Lord, but for an outstretched soul full of faith. I pray that you'd give them, Lord, the forgiveness of sins. I pray that you'd give them, Lord, even as you promised, new life. That you'd do something wonderful in them, Lord. Thank you, God. We thank you for the faithfulness of your promise. And we receive it with gratitude here this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's worship him together. Folks, God is good. Our service time isn't over now. We've had God speak to us. Now let's speak to him and declare to him how much we love him and how much we want to worship him. Let's pray.